Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi guys, welcome back to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, hosted by yours truly, Christine Kim and Consensus's Ben Edgington. Hi everybody, Ben here. Christine and I, as usual, will be going through your weekly roundup of markets, tech, and community-related news about Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0. So, Christine, I've developed a really bad habit during lockdown, and I realize I need to get out of it. I've started binge-watching lots of American soap series, you know, like currently going through NCIS. I'm on season 12, (laughs) which is mostly rubbish. What have you started binge watching? What have you started doing during lockdown? I too have gotten into the American shows and the dramas. On Netflix right now, there's a series called All American about this high school black football player. It's incredible. It's such a good show. So after your NCIS, Ben, you have to watch All American. And we got to discuss that more on this show, (laughs) even though it has nothing to do with Ethereum. But Oh, that's a great recommendation. Yeah, I was going to recommend The Americans, which is not very new, but this is about back in the 1980s. It's a historical drama. Back in the 1980s, a couple of Soviet spies are living as Americans, and it's uh, the story of their uh, journey. And it's incredible. It's it's absolutely brilliant. The last season is perfection. So uh, I will remember All American and The Americans. (laughs) Those seem like two very different shows, though, in terms of like the content, but it's fine. I mean, it has both American in the title and we're clearly both very much getting into American TV shows lately. So that's your recommendation, everyone, for what to do when you're not deep into the weeds of what's happening in the crypto industry, something to get your mind off of the craziness of what happens in the 24 hour crypto markets. But here on this show, we're going to get started with our usual market segment. And for today's market segment, we are joined by Alexander Bloom, the Managing Director of Digital Asset Fund 2 Prime. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, good to speak with you both. And I've personally been watching Downton Abbey, and so I've been going across the other way from the pond and, and doing some British soap operas. <laughs> nice. Maybe I should look at that sometime. <laughs> it's pretty good. I mean, the main joy of it is the British accent, but you have that all the time. So it's not, <laughs> not as appealing, maybe. Ben, how have you not watched Downton Abbey? My family has watched all of it, but yeah, I watch Americans chasing each other around with guns, and that's, uh, <laughs> that's my thing. <laughs> Okay, we're going to continue down this rabbit hole of American TV shows if I don't put my foot down right now and say we got to talk about ETH because Alex, I know you have limited time and we're very, very appreciative of you coming on this show to talk about specifically institutional interest in Ethereum. Back in April, 2 Prime, your company released this report about the rise of institutional investment in Ethereum. So Alex, how close is Ethereum today to catching up with Bitcoin in terms of institutional activity and volume on chain, as well as in the derivatives markets? You know, for some context, I run a fund that one of our products solely focuses on buying Bitcoin and Ether and then trading options to further amplify the benefits of owning those things. And we're 
also constantly rebalancing based upon both technical and fundamental uh, measures, how much Bitcoin and how much ETH that we hold. And I, I think the important part of that is like, I'm not here ideologically, I'm here trying to make money for people. And so, you know, I'm not biased by, I believe in Bitcoin's future or ETH's future. I'm just interested in what the facts point to. And in that sense, I think that, I mean, if you want to compare Bitcoin to ETH, I think that on both a fundamental and technical level, ETH to me looks much more promising right now. Currently, our fund is weighted about 70% ETH and 30% Bitcoin. Part of that's just been, if you've held ETH and Bitcoin in equal proportion over the last year, you end up having a lot more ETH in dollar value than Bitcoin to begin with. On a kind of technical level, you know, there's, we look a lot at the derivatives markets. And so two big indicators of kind of future anticipated events are the spread between Bitcoin and Ether spot and futures. And so how much people are willing to pay for Bitcoin or Ether out one month or three months in the future is a good sense of the market sentiment around where, where things are going. And, and both Bitcoin and Ether, both with this recent uptick have been trading at least positively where people think the price is going to be higher in a month, three months, six months from now in terms of the futures and, and options trading they've been doing. But Ether has a higher spread. So the future like premium you pay for Ether is uh, closer to 10%, whereas for Bitcoin, it's right around 7 8% right now. And the same, the, the skew or the amount of calls being bought out into the future is more skewed to the upside on Ether than Bitcoin. I think also, you know, obviously Ether just has so many more uses than, than Bitcoin in terms of what it can provide for. There's obviously this whole rise of, of the DeFi markets and, and tons of new uses. And, and really, we get a lot of questions like why we only invest in Bitcoin and Ether, but obviously owning Ether, a lot of the value of, of all those other assets accrues down to the Ether asset. And so it's a way to kind of get macro exposure as well. And then I think, I guess the last thing that I'm just very bullish on is I actually just came from a invite-only Bitcoin developers conference down in Mexico. And what I came away with is basically on a cultural level, Ether is really open source. Like I think people are new, trying new stuff. They're experimenting. They're making mistakes. There's people that are excited about stuff. And to me, Bitcoin feels like a bunch of like monks protecting their holy sacred grail. But even some of the developers there said, if I was starting today, I would develop on Ethereum. It's more welcoming. It's easier to get started on. There's more tooling for it. And it's just a more exciting cultural place, which I think, you know, in the crypto space, everybody's so technical that I think it's easy to discount the cultural or sort of excitement around developing on something. But where all the brains go, that's where the value is going to accrue from an investment perspective as well. And from whatever my perspective is, that's it seems to me that overwhelmingly Ether and Ethereum protocol is, is attracting new talent and new ideas. That's incredible. You've totally confirmed all of my prejudices, which is, <laughs> which is great. I noticed that Coinbase released their Q2 report recently. And for the first time, Ether flipped Bitcoin in terms of trading volume in that quarter. Were you surprised by that or, or do you just see it as inevitable? It doesn't surprise me that the rate of growth is greater, but it did surprise me that the actual total nominal number was greater. That being said, I think Ethereum benefits from coming second to Bitcoin, whereas like the headway you have to make from an institution to get involved in any cryptocurrency and the people that have to approve it and all the risks and education required is massive. But once you're like on Coinbase, it's just a couple more clicks and a couple more meetings to start treating something secondarily. Like, and obviously the second choice of what people would start with is Ethereum. And then just, you know, the market cap is lower, at least for now. And so it just makes sense that that's where more excitement and more energy would be going. And I think also there's just a lot more narrative heft that you can put into Ethereum in terms of explaining what it can do and why it's exciting that, you know, I think I've heard people, I, I like Bitcoin. I've owned Bitcoin for many years. 
And I think it's a great investment relative to almost anything else. But I think a lot of people, it's like, I've heard, you know, on Twitter, people call it kind of like the boomer coin at this point. Like it's not exciting and it, it's very pure, purist in the sense that it does the same thing and can be relied upon for that. But it's a very limited specific thing that doesn't really excite people. So it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that volumes for Ethereum are exceeding those of Bitcoin. And I would expect that to, to only continue. Well, clearly the premise of my first question was wrong. I was like, is Ethereum close to catching up to Bitcoin? But I think from this conversation, the metric that you explained, Ben, and then also just the fund allocation that you mentioned, Alex, I mean, Ethereum has caught up to Bitcoin and in many ways it's outperforming Bitcoin already. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about the metrics that 2Prime and Alex, you guys look at. Uh, very closely to measure institutional involvement in crypto and especially in DeFi. I talked about the institutional interest report on ETH. Your company released another report on the derivatives traders guide to institutional crypto and DeFi. And in it, you guys compare, you know, traditional futures and options market metrics and you apply them to the DeFi markets. Tell me a little bit about what parallels, Alex, you see between trading in DeFi versus the traditional markets. And what are some of the advantages and disadvantages that DeFi trading has over trading with traditional equities? Yeah, so I mean, for us, we're always taking kind of a risk-based approach to understanding how we can get invested into something and what the trade-off is. And it could be that there's high risk and high reward, or there's very low risk and low reward, or what we try to find is high reward and low risk. You know, so some of the things to evaluate that are the same, like how much total volume is there, how long has the asset been around for, how much, how quickly can we execute a trade, and like who are the counterparties, who are the people behind the company, for example. And then I think what's unique about the DeFi markets is there's an additional layer of technical risk that you don't really, would, would not really see on a centralized exchange. Like I just have to trust Deribit or, you know, Binance or whatever that they've gotten it right, but I don't have to trust like, 30 different protocols and 30 different teams and half of them are anonymous to assess like what's safe or what's not safe. And I also don't need to like on a centralized exchange, like pick, try to go through their code and try to find bugs before somebody else finds, finds a bug. Uh, and so there's that added layer of like technical risk. Uh, I think also kind of uniquely on the, the DeFi side is you have a lot of sort of what I would call leveraged or layered products. So for example, like on the US Terra token, you can stake your stable coin into the anchor protocol. I guess this isn't uh, Ethereum, but there's similar parallels to Ethereum, but you stake your token into a protocol and then you can restake the assets into a secondary usage that allows you to effectively leverage up, but it also is sort of like leveraging up your risk because now I have like six different places that things can go wrong rather than just a, you know one centralized exchange. And so what that means is both for an individual investor that there's higher like technical risk or more places, more attack vectors, I think they'd say from a technological perspective. And also like financially, if I have the uh, subprime mortgage crisis, like if I have six stacks of like leverage and codependencies, it's easier for there to be a cascading of risk and failure if, if something goes wrong and, and harder to see. I think also like what we see in financial markets is like the real segmentation of different parts of an investment. And so sometimes it's a little bit opaque and to understand how are these things even interconnected and what's the real risk because they're so segmented in a way where I may not even see how Two things are necessarily connected. I think that leads into the topic which um, I was kind of keen to ask you about, which is regulation, right? I, it's kind of flip side of risk. The response to risk is often regulation, and it's a really hot topic at the moment. We debated 
even in the US Senate recently. How do you see regulation of crypto playing out from your perspective? And, and what, what kind of regulation is going to strengthen crypto or uh, what might kind of kill the golden goose, as it were? Uh, it's such a, a kind of broad topic and there's so much to it, but I would say that, well, maybe the easiest kind of lowest hanging fruit is regulation that's helpful is just clarity of how things are going to be regulated and taxed and legally enforced so that large institutions can participate. So like, I think there's a lot of institutions that, you know, for a long time wanted to get into Bitcoin or Ether or other top digital assets, but like, even if they think it's the best investment in the world, if they don't understand if it's a commodity or a security and there's some risk that it might get completely banned altogether. I can't expose as a fiduciary, my investors to that kind of risk, especially at, you know, tier one investment firms. And so just clarity around, okay, like Solana, a commodity, or is it a security? Is it some other category I've never heard of? Um, I think for Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is part of why we only touch those things is they're pretty clearly, at least from a, a legal risk perspective, regulated as commodities, uh, particularly you know, we trade derivatives and derivatives contracts, if it was for a security as an underlying would be regulated by the SEC and the CFTC. However, both for Ethereum, it's only regulated the derivatives by the CFTC, which implies it's only a commodity and, and not a security. And I think that gives assurance to us and our investors that we have some safety there. I think, you know, there's this constant tension between regulation in the United States, which I think we tend to look at a lot, but the United States is in competition with other jurisdictions to attract new business, attract excitement, and be kind of on the forefront of, of meaningful regulation. And so just like China banning it, they don't, there's no country that can turn off the internet or turn off cryptocurrency. And so there's some pressure from tier one economies to at least be welcoming of these things because they're clearly you know, not going away. I think part of why Ethereum was regulated as a commodity is because it was so distributed at that point. It couldn't be called a security. Half the freaking world would have been in, in legal jeopardy otherwise. And so beyond that, like there's this whole new category of like DeFi. You know, I think a lot of regulation is based upon a buyer and a seller in, in the financial markets. And these new things we're creating are sort of, they're not unregulated or regulated. They're like X uh, new, like green space or blue skies kind of like there's no rules that apply to how do you regulate a protocol that nobody is directly in charge of and who do I enforce actions against when it's just released into the wild as, as code. I think like what's happening with Uniswap currently where the uh, government recently asked them to delist certain tokens like Mirror Protocol, for example, which offers synthetic uh, trading of stocks uh, is an interesting case because yeah, Uniswap, the company can delist that, but their UI and UX is open source. And so I can just copy and paste that and start trading it elsewhere. Um, and, you know, ultimately, like, I guess, for example, like ETFs, for example, other countries have Bitcoin ETFs and those companies and those economies are benefiting from it, like in Canada. Uh, and so it puts more pressure on like U.S. government to figure it out. But at the same time, the U.S. is such an incumbent uh, and it's clearly kind of seems China's bowed out of really going into the crypto space outside of their own digital, you know, national fiat money that... Uh, the U.S. has a lot of heft in, in setting the tone and, and directing the way that regulation will unfold, but they certainly don't have full control and there are other economies that are already way ahead. And so I think that was a bit all over the place, but I hope that provides some clarity. I think that reflects the state of play in the, uh, amongst the regulators as well. It's going to take years, if not decades, to uh, get on top of this, I think. Yeah, well, and I think even like by the time they catch up to it, the industry is going to be 10 steps further along the way. And so it's, 
kind of a perpetual sort of cat and mouse development, I think. I really agree with you guys that innovation in the crypto space is outpacing and moving a lot faster than regulators are, than policies can be created. For you, Alex, question about how you see the speed at which Ethereum is innovating and upgrading and creating radical changes to their fee market, their underlying consensus protocol, their security, their issuance, their monetary policy. On Bitcoin, one of the things that investors can find solace in, in that is that Bitcoin won't change, that their investment in BTC in five years down the line, they'll have like a completely different crypto asset. On Ethereum, it's a little different. There's the vision and the roadmap for Ethereum has changed multiple times and will likely continue to change. Tell me about how the increased technological risk of Ethereum impacts the way you guys have been investing and see the long-term value use case of Ethereum. Yeah, so I kind of think about it as like a story about evolution where like, it's not that like things that evolve and try new stuff, they make mistakes and things die off and certain species don't work out, but the general trajectory is towards higher intelligence, higher survivability and more fitness for uh, living in our environment. And it's an environment that's constantly changing. And so I think that anything like in the natural world or in the financial world that doesn't change is eventually going to become obsolete or less effective because the context that it's in is changing all the time. And so on the Ethereum side, you know, I think it's also like this balance of, you know, it, Bitcoin in a sense is almost like a, a religion, I guess, or it's like a very, it's almost an abstraction in terms of, it's like an idea that doesn't really change and I can have a lot of faith in, and it's very pure. There's not a person that represents Bitcoin in the same way that like Vitalik represents Ethereum. And I think there's this balance of like, especially when things are early in their nascency, like I don't want a million random strangers I've never heard of being in charge of stuff. I want somebody who I can count upon, who I can make judgments around his or her or that group's competency and then watch as things develop and change. It seems to me that, you know, like with the upgrade of ETH 2.0, the move from proof of work to proof of stake, I think those are necessary changes that um, are going to benefit the industry over time. And there's enough, I think, network effect within Ethereum that yeah, they might have some wrong ideas or go in the wrong direction a little bit, but not to the degree where the whole you know project is is a moot point. Uh, I think there's also really much competition from Bitcoin. Not only does Ethereum benefit from its own team of developers, but as 30 people competing against it, like Solana and um, Binance Smart Chain, that allow for it to watch other experiments and innovate and use what works well there. And for me, like I'm not again an idealist that needs perfect decentralization and complete absolute liberty and freedom this minute right now. And I'm, I'm happy to have a core team that makes some decisions and grows and responds to what the market learns. That's the way I think about it. Okay. So one final last question. So given that, given what you just said, would you agree that Ethereum is too big to fail in that it will have these ambitious upgrades? If there is potentially, you know, a mistake, quote unquote, that happens on the main net and it is significant that Ethereum will just continue to evolve and continue to succeed because it's already amassed, like it's already amassed just so much value, so many users, so many decentralized applications that at this point you find security and insurance in the fact that the cryptocurrency is too big to fail. Yeah, I guess 
I don't think anything's too big to fail, right? There are, you know, I think eventually the United States won't be the primary like society in the world. And so if the United States can fail, I think Ethereum could also fail, at least be have certain parts of what it offers be uh, subsumed or usurped by other blockchains. So, but I do think that the like network effects and momentum and developer community around Ethereum, like and just the capital and financial interest, there's nothing else on the derivative side, only Bitcoin and Ethereum even have liquid derivatives markets, which is the only way for real institutions to participate. And so I think at what point was like Google just so dominant that it didn't really matter if there were competitors. I think Ethereum's potentially pretty close to that place. And I mean, there are like Solana, for example, has like trade-offs that make it better in some ways than Ethereum in terms of transaction speed, for example. But I can't run my DeFi system on Solana because nobody is really using it. Or if people are using it, it's because they're being like largely incentivized by some kind of Solana investment or fund to get things moving. It's not too big to fail, but I think if I had to, I mean, as I do, like make a educated bet on where the markets are moving, I would have a hard time seeing another layer one blockchain competing against Ethereum. I hear you. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for those thoughts and those insights on Ethereum and the institutional investment case for Ethereum. We appreciate having you on the show and hope to have you back again soon. Yeah, pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. That's it for the market segment for today. We're going to be right back after this quick break from our sponsors. There are so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. And we're back. And let's talk now about our technical topic for the day. Now, Christine, I want to talk about formal verification. What do you know about software testing? I usually don't know very much about this. Formal verification and software testing. This is important so that the code does not have bugs in them, in the code, right? And all code has bugs, right? But the problem is with a blockchain like uh, Ethereum, bugs are particularly serious. I mean, they have devastating effects. If the protocol forks because clients disagree with each other about the state, then there's a huge amount of uh, value at stake, literally. And it's very hard to recover when something like this happens. Not impossible, but uh, definitely difficult and involves chain rollbacks and all sorts of unpleasantness. So we're really, very, really, really very keen to make sure that the protocol and the implementations of it are, are basically as bug-free as they possibly can be. And software development doesn't really have a good history of achieving this in reality. The kind of traditional approach to testing is, you know, you write some code and you write as many tests as you can think of, unit tests and integration tests and end-to-end -end tests and smoke tests and, you know, every kind of testing you can think of. But the problem with testing is that every function in, a, in the code can have zillions of possible inputs and your test only tests, you know, one, two, three of them, maybe a dozen, or if you do fuzzing, you can kind of test randomly a large selection of inputs but you can never test all of the possible inputs or states. You're always 
in danger of a little corner case somewhere that you've missed in your tests or something you just never thought about uh, that you haven't tested for. That's one of the problems. So the answer to this is formal verification. Should I explain formal verification? Yes, you finally got me hooked. <laughs> is, is formal verification the solution to this endless, we cannot find, uh, we cannot know all the inputs for these tests? Basically, uh, yes. So, and, and the reason I mention this now is because two of my colleagues in Consensus have just finished a big piece of work, a huge piece of work, which is producing a formal verification of the Ethereum 2 specification. And uh, we'll link to it from the, uh, the show notes. But this is the first time that the whole Ethereum 2 beacon chain protocol has been formally verified. And this goes way beyond writing a bunch of tests. We've had kind of reference tests for ages and all the clients run and so on. And still we find bugs because there are tests and corner cases and edge cases missing. But formal verification, uh, what it does is it, you can say, if the code is in this state and I run this function, it must end up in this other state. So we can define uh, what that means. You can prove that for any inputs, certain things always hold true like the code will never crash, or that you will never try to access validators that don't exist, or that all validators get their balances updated every epoch, that you're, you're not missing any out, um, or you can prove that correctly behaving validator will never get slashed, you know, important stuff like that. You can prove that um, the chain that you're working on is continuous going back to the Genesis block and there's no breaks or uh, any other weirdness going on. So lots of slight higher level things you can you can prove using formal verification and this is exactly what this work does and proves that the ethereum 2 beacon chain spec is consistent that it's bug free that it does what we expect it to do so how cool is that does ethereum have formal verification for all of its software clients is this formal verification client specific or more on the protocol level so this is on the protocol level, and the basic Ethereum protocol, Ethereum 1, has some work in this direction. So there's something called the K framework, which is a move towards formal verification, but it, it, it has some limitations. What my colleagues have done is they've worked in a language called Daphne, which is developed by Microsoft. And Daphne is a specific specification language that lends itself to doing pre and post conditions and approving things about the code. And it's one of the biggest Daphne projects that's ever been undertaken. This goes beyond anything that I'm aware of that's been done for Ethereum 1. So this is really, you know, first rate formal verification. It's the Royal McCoy. You can use this Daphne code as a specification. You can generate test cases from it. You can even compile it into different languages. So you can generate Java code from it or C code or, or whatever and build a client out of it if, if you want to. This is great news for the security of the Ethereum 2.0 beacon chain, which for a long time and still to many is seen as a very experimental project. Now that I understand more about this, it's a huge step forward for the security of the blockchain. I mean, I know this week, the test network for the Ethereum 2.0 beacon chain, the Primon testnet is going to be upgraded, have its first hard fork Altair, does the formal verification need to also update once Ethereum 2.0 completes its first hard fork upgrade? Right. So every change to the specification needs to go through the formal verification 
uh, update process. Unfortunately, the verification task is kind of lagging the implementation a bit, which ideally you formally verify it before anyone implements it and it goes live. We're a bit behind the curve on this. It will still be a a very important exercise because it gives everyone confidence. You know, I mean, Cardano blockchain, they make a big deal about this kind of stuff. And it's why they are being so slow to produce anything is because they are trying to do everything in a very rigorous academic way. At least that's their claim. I just want to say uh, we are also <laughs> doing this. You know, uh, Ethereum is not an outlier. I should mention the, the names of my colleagues, give them a shout out. This is Joanne Fuller and Franck Casset, who have done this, this work. And we'll um, link to some of their material from the show notes. But this, I think, is an under-discussed but really important topic. And so I wanted to uh, highlight it this week for our tech topic all right. Well, thank you for that. I'm glad that you brought this up because I definitely did not know anything about this. It's clearly very important work for the ecosystem of Ethereum 2.0 and will be more so once Ethereum merges into its proof of stake network. Expect that to happen in the next six months or so. So I believe this formal verification is a step in the right direction. For our last segment of the show today, our community segment, where we talk about various trends and events happening in the Ethereum community. I wanted to talk about the adoption of Ethereum's fee market change, EIP-1559, which went live earlier this month on August 5th. EIP-1559 introduces better fee predictability to the Ethereum blockchain. And originally when the EIP-1559 code change was first activated, it looked like roughly 90% of transactions on Ethereum were not actually leveraging the benefits of EIP-1559. Checking again today on Dune Analytics, which is a Ethereum data platform, I noticed that that number, that percentage of transactions that use the EIP-1559 format has significantly improved. I'm seeing on certain blocks, 60%. 50% of transactions properly formatted for leveraging the benefits of EIP-1559, which is pretty encouraging to see, meaning that applications and users do really find benefit in using EIP-1559 formatted transactions. Ben, do you know of a, a time in which there was a need for various Ethereum wallets, service providers, decentralized applications to update their UI UX for a certain code change and how long it took them. Is this like relatively fast for adoption of EIP-1559 compared to other previous upgrades or do you think it's taking longer than usual? It's hard to think of any user-facing change uh, that's quite as extensive as 1559. I think the, the changes to wallet have been extensive, both in the kind of user-facing and also the back-end calculation side of things, which is likely why it's taking a while. So. I think the the reason why there's been sort of slow take up of the type two transactions, as we call them for 1559, is largely because MetaMask, which is the most widely used uh, Ethereum wallet, has been rolling out rather gradually. So I have 1559 in my Firefox MetaMask add-on, but not yet in my Chrome, uh, for example. So it hasn't rolled out to that yet. So I'm using Firefox now for all my Ethereum stuff. Yeah, and it's kind of hard for them to do it ahead of time 
because there's limited time for 1559 to be out on the test nets. You know, it's only a few weeks and it, it takes a lot of time to do changes this extensive. So they're getting there, it's rolling out. It will be the default. It'll be in everybody's browsers within a few weeks. And I expect that the number of legacy transactions to go down and down. Type two transactions. That's so much simpler than EIP 1559 <laughs> formatted transactions, which I've been including in my articles and also in my discussions with colleagues. Uh, for this whole time, I could have just called them type twos. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's uh, not very imaginative name, but it'll do. Right. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's certain benefits to type two transactions on Ethereum, such as gaining a refund for overpaying on your transactions. Originally, any under Ethereum's uh, fee market before the upgrade, you could overbid your transactions and the full amount of your overbidding would go to, to a miner. And with EIP-1559, these type two transactions allow for users to optimize for exactly the minimum fee that they need to pay to get included into a block and get refunded the difference. That's such a no-brainer benefit to using type two transactions. Yeah, uh, it's been interesting exploring it over the past few days. The not all applications are quite with the program yet. So I was using a DAP decentralized application over the weekend, and it was setting the minor tip to some huge amount, like 50 gig away, something like that. Whereas actually this only need be like three gig away. And it was setting the minor tip to the same as the base fee. You know, if I hadn't been savvy enough to kind of correct it, you know, press the right buttons and change it down again, I would have ended up overpaying massively for the transaction. There's still some applications need to get with the program, never mind what the wallets are doing. MetaMask has a nice, if you kind of click through enough advanced feature stuff, you can just click a, a button for sort of low, medium, high priority transactions, and it'll just set everything for you. So you, you don't need to worry about the, the actual numbers. Yeah, there's still a little bit of friction in the uh, process just yet, but it will get much smoother. My transactions are getting confirmed really quickly. So, you know, that job is done, but I do feel like I'm paying a lot. I mean, partly because the, the gas price is high, because there are lots of drops of nfts at the moment and that's all gone a bit crazy but but also because i am really stingy with with gas i used to like if i don't need something confirmed immediately if like you know any time in the next six hours would do I'd, I'd set a really low value that seems kind of harder to do now you have big red warnings that pop up and things if you're if you set your base fee too low yeah interesting it's going to take some, a, a while to get used to yeah and it's different because now eip1559 helps users who are trying to send their transactions in the moment. But if you want to optimize to send your transactions within the next hour to find the lowest, basically the time at which your transaction would go through with the lowest amount of minimum fees, that's just not possible. That's, that's not something that this, this upgrade addresses, nor does it address the actual scalability issue of Ethereum that is causing the high fees. But these are improvements to Ethereum that is still expected to come with other further upgrades down the road, like Ethereum's transition to proof of stake, the introduction of shards, I guess some other technologies like ZK. Rollups, rollups, yeah, sharding. Sharding is the key one and then enabling rollups. And yeah, it's all happening. It's scalability is bursting out all over. So good news, <laughs> it, it will get better. Good news. All right. That is it for our show today. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Please be sure to join us again next week for another weekly roundup of your markets, tech, and community news related to the ongoing evolution of the Ethereum blockchain. 
If you have any questions you'd like answered on this podcast, you can connect with Ben and I on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. And you can subscribe to our newsletters. I write every other week on what's new in ETH2, which you can find at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. Christine writes Valid Points, which comes out every Wednesday, and you can find that at coindesk.com. See you all next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington with guest Alex Bloom. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. 